You are listening to Billionaires in Boxes, the number one podcast publicist for businesses globally. Hello and welcome to this edition of Billionaires in Boxes with me, your host, Phil Paluccia. I am joined by a very special guest, Claire Chandler. Um, lots and lots of things that I could say about Claire. She's uh, representing a great business called Talent Boost. Uh, she walks with swagger, this lady, is what I read about her. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation, although hopefully we won't be doing too much walking because I don't know what that does to the, the mic range. Um, but uh, Claire is the leader's secret weapon. So this podcast is all going to be about leadership, the quality of leadership, and why it's important within your business. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Claire. Thanks, Phil. It is so great to be here. I'm excited to have this conversation. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of fun. You and I always have fun when we meet and talk. So <laughs> yes, we I, do. I can only imagine where this podcast is going to go. But uh, buckle in for the ride, guys. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so for our audience who haven't come across you before, um, please give us a bit, a bit of an introduction to you and, and what you do. Yeah, sure. So, uh, so thanks again for having me. Um, I, I am a corporate survivor. So I spent uh, the the better part of uh, two decades in corporate America after swearing I was never going to go into into corporate, but there I was. That's where the opportunities Mm -hmm. were after college. And uh, I I had a a varied and storied corporate career. I started out in uh, the communications space um, and then made my way over to human resources of all places. And uh, after again, swearing, I was never going to work in HR. So, you know, I, I, at some point I've got to learn never to say never. Um, but that's where I found my my groove, my my mojo, my swagger, if you will, um, you know, in, in the most unexpected of places when I was, uh, was in HR for a, a relatively large global organization um, and did all things talent development. So talent management and tapping into the leaders of tomorrow, um, you know, identifying who they would be, what we would do with them to prepare them for, you know, for greatness and bigger roles and, and all that sort of thing. And, and I got hooked on that. Um, and then my, you know, my corporate career kind of evolved into more of an executive track. And so I was put into a, um, into a role where I was in charge of human resources for uh, one of the larger divisions of our of our company. It was soup to nuts HR, full cycle, the hiring, the firing, the compliance, the you know all, all of that. And it was a great experience because I I learned a lot and I grew and I stretched and I had a wonderful team. But it absolutely cemented for me that that was not where I was passionate. And right, where okay. I was passionate, right, was was sort of the role prior to that, which was all all things talent and leadership uh, mm. development. And so, just going on ten years ago now, um, I sort of parted ways with with the company, very amicable amicable uh, breakup. And you know, I said I'm going to go out on my own, and I'm going to you know sort of forge my own my own path as a as a business owner and, and leader. Um, and so fast forward to now, so I, my company, uh, as you mentioned is talent boost. Um, and I specialize in really tapping into the leadership DNA in companies, uh, of, of all sizes really, um, to, to bring out the best in that leadership so they can drive sustainable profitability by accelerating the performance of their people. I'm curious, is that more 
is that more process driven or is that more people skills driven? Because I've met leaders who ha- who are great at both, but rarely, uh, sorry, great at one or the other, but rarely great at both, right? You've got the people who are incredible at following a process and putting that in place, but actually have no people skills whatsoever. And then you have the other people who are really great people managers, but actually they almost seem to be a bit of a whirlwind. Like when they're around, everything's going great, but there's no structure when they're not there. It's kind of like the substitute teacher kind of thing. Like when they're in the room, you behave, and when they step out, all carnage breaks loose. So is it it the process? Is it the people skills? Or is it a combination of the both? Yeah, I would say, oh, it's such a great analogy to to substitute teachers. Um, But it is absolutely, it's a combination of of both. Um, And it's interesting because leaders come in all shapes and sizes, right? And some are are very much more naturally uh, guided by and comfortable with a process to follow, a framework, a structure. And then others are the opposite size, the opposite side of that spectrum. You know, they say, um, I, I'm more of a, uh, of a visionary. I'm a big picture thinker. I'm all about the people. I'm all about how to, you know, get to know them. And, and, and they'll, they'll learn to sort of go with my chaos, right? Because I'm such yeah. a likable person. Um, (laughs) Right. And so true leadership kind of combines the both, right. It's sort of, it channels and harnesses those great people skills in a way that is replicable and consistent and reliable. And it also takes those who were totally process nerds and says, you know, that's great that you've got that as a foundation and that gives you some level of security and comfort, but now let's use that as a pedestal, not as a, as a fence. Right. Mm. And let's use that to to help you to lead in more proactive and personable ways. So, I, yeah. So I would say it's a combination of both. It's interesting, actually. So I, I think back in, in my own career and actually, you know, uh, people who listen to my podcast will know I'm quite happy to share my own misgivings as well. And I, I kind of had to learn to get that balance right, even with on my own team, because I, I think I'm guilty of doing both of those things in extreme and, and only recently really starting to learn how to combine them. So as, a, as being a surveyor by trade, uh, very good at kind of designing the roadmap, but not very good at communicating it with other people. Um, then there are other times where people have almost said, you know, you're like a motivational speaker, like you get us all pumped up, but then we still don't know what to do after you've left because you've got us all pumped up on what we're doing, but there's no structure. There's no like, what, what is it we actually do now? It's like, I'm ready to go, but go and do what, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you, you see that so often, uh, especially in these, uh, I'll sort of pick on the startup companies for a second or, or, or focus on them because you've just described every visionary who ever had a big idea and built a company around it, right? Um, because as a species, entrepreneurs and, and leaders of startup uh, types of ventures um, are not about process and they are certainly not about structure. They are about the grand idea, the, the big vision, and you know they sort of use that energy and rely upon um, their passion for what they have discovered and want to offer to the world as the magnet for the people that are going to help them get there. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I see that in my experience in, in dealing with startups and companies that are trying to evolve. It's that sort of leadership model. Um, typically as a species, they are absolutely people-driven and process-averse. So using that as an example then, because I'm curious, I mean, we're going off on a tangent already, but I'm curious here um, because I imagine there's a lot of learning to be done here. How do you get the balance right between having a structure in place for the growth 
without also being blinkered to new opportunities. Because one of the great things about these startups is how agile they can be to adapt to new circumstances and new opportunities and new markets, right? That's what one of the criticisms we have of large businesses is big wheels turn slowly. It takes them too long to be able to implement change. So how do you get the balance right between having a structure to get you to where you're going whilst also retaining that agility and flexibility to be able to, to move with the market? It is such a hugely important question, and, and this is where startups succeed or flame out, right? Because every startup that I know and every entrepreneurial type of a business that I have worked with or come into contact with um, has this, uh, this energy, this passion, this big idea in the first person or people that they surround them with, the, you know, surround themselves with mm. are swept along in that, in that energy, and the problem, of course, is at the point where they get that early success, they get that first client, they get that first bit of business, they get that first sort of uh, bite of the apple of their of their big idea, and they say, okay, we've got something here, right? That first client came on board because of the vision and the passion and the energy and the smarts of that founder, but now we've got to grow. And you can't scale you can't replicate right success if you don't have some uh, measure of structure, if you don't have some framework, if you don't have some uh, mechanism for repeating what works and yes. learning from what doesn't, right? So and true. oftentimes what happens is if you don't have that structure, you end up tripping over the same stumbling blocks. And so innovation just becomes a distraction, a shiny object, a, mm. a, a crab in a bucket, as somebody had, had described it to me. Um, but you have to be very careful, right? Because again, those entrepreneurial minds, those startup founders, those uh, you know, those those folks with this sort of growth mindset, don't want to be bogged down with a lot of structure, a lot of bureaucracy, mm. a lot of consensus building, and all of that. And so they see those big organizations. Uh, I've always used the analogy of like you know one of these big barges, right? These huge ships that are very steady, they're very sturdy, they're very reliable but extremely slow to turn, right? Yes. Um, versus sort of the the cigarette boat, right? The, the, the yeah, very yeah. powered motorboat, um, which, which can go really fast and it's a lot of fun to operate, but can burn out pretty quickly if you don't know what you're doing. So, there, so that blend is extremely important. And I think as startups and as growth-minded companies start to grow, they have to lean into the process side of things uh, it is not a necessary evil. It is absolutely a driver of their future growth. Yeah. So there's there's a couple of businesses that are actually coming to mind as you're speaking there. Actually, that 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 I was thinking of, and I I described them as roller coaster businesses, right? So these were businesses that would fluctuate between kind of fifty and a hundred headcount, and they were doing exactly what you just described, right? They were making the same mistakes, falling over the same things. They'd get to a hundred, and they'd say, "We want to do 125." And within six months, they were back down to 50, 60 people. And what both of those businesses ended up doing was the CEOs would end up hiring an MD who had far better leadership qualities with them and was far more structured. And they would remain the the vision for the business, uh, the face of the company. But they really didn't want to be that that kind of person doing the nitty gritty, putting the structure in place and really kind of having the leadership quality. So uh, I guess that's an interesting question as well, isn't it? Is, is as a, let's say a CEO of a business, 
how do you know when it's you that should be improving on your leadership qualities or whether this is somebody that you should be bringing into your business to allow you to remain focused on the vision? That's such a great example and such a great question. And unfortunately, I've seen uh, many a founder um, not able to let go of the of the day to day running of the business. Um, you know, they, they've they've gone so far as to say, "Listen, that's not my forte." However, I'm the head of the business. This business is mine. It's my brand. It's my name. It's my reputation, and therefore, I have to be the managing director and the CEO, not only the visionary, but the business developer. I have to be, you know, the, the one innovating and building the strategy, but also handling the execution. And the answer is hell to the no to that because mm. it's absolutely not Agreed. true, right? Um, and and so that, that point, that inflection point in the growth of a company where that CEO, the founder, whatever they want to call themselves, um, is is in a growth mode, is in a point of their evolution where something has to give, right? Because now they have, um, you know, I call they become the victims of their own success, right? So they've started to grow. They've maybe added a second or third or fifth client. They've started to bring on a team. And it is the rare CEO or founder or startup entrepreneur who can remain in both camps as you grow. You can't be both the visionary, the strategist, and the business developer and the manager of the people in the process and the, you know, and the payroll and all of that. Um, so, you know, so that decision, so it, 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 getting to that decision starts with a level of self-awareness um, you know, that I, I think a lot of leaders, I know that a lot of leaders have a lot of ego, but let's not confuse that with narcissism right now. There are certainly, we've all seen our share of narcissistic leaders, but there's a difference between being ego-driven and being narcissistic. You are necessarily ego-driven if you step into a leadership role. You have to be, right? Um, but you can be humble at the same time, and you can be open to acknowledging what the people around you already know, mm. which is you can't possibly know everything. You can't possibly do everything. Sure. And so self-awareness is absolutely that first key. And then understanding, okay, if I'm not meant to do everything, if we're truly going to grow – then I need to section off what does not come naturally to me as my genius zone, as my strength. And for some founders, it's to let go of the visionary piece. It's to hire the strategist. It's to hire the business developer. But in most cases, you know, the, the cultures that we're talking about, the companies that we're talking about, that, that initial founder, that CEO, that first leader likes to retain and is, is usually naturally talented at staying on top of the vision, the strategy, maybe some of the client outreach or, you know, or being that sort of late stage closer. Um, so self-awareness is absolutely key, kind of leaning into what your strengths are and letting go of, of the others and, and surrounding yourself with people and processes that yes. complement your strengths. You're speaking my language now. So I talk a lot about business being a team sport, right? And, yeah. and you, you can't be every player on the pitch. That's not possible. Like you need to focus on the bit that you're best at and then surround yourself with people who are equally as good um, at their bit. And I think so many businesses really kind of struggle to do that. I mean, how many times, you, I'm sure you've seen it. I see it a lot in terms of entrepreneurs trying to wear all these different hats and trying to be all things to all people. And you just end up not doing anything successfully or efficiently because you're trying to spin too many plates um a great example of that actually is the is the tech businesses 
emerging technology. Now, not always, but quite often those tech businesses are ran by very sort of technical minded development style people, right? And by and large, I mean, this is a sweeping statement, but by and large, those people suck at sales, right? <laughs> and and they're, 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 just to put it lightly, but the reason that they suck at sales is because that they, what excites them as a techie is not what excites the user who's buying the product, right? Most people are buying a service or a product or whatever it is because of the transformational aspect that it's going to have on their life or their business. They don't care about how long it took to develop or how many servers you've got or how fast it can go or what chip it's got inside it or why you chose that platform over this one. Like other techies will have that nerd off conversation with you and love it. But if you're, if you're trying to have a conversation with somebody like it just, it doesn't work that way. So you see it a lot in technical pre-sales, right? And pre-sales is an interesting one completely because you're trying to sell a product that doesn't even exist yet. You're trying to sell something based off what it's going to do. But then you go really heavy in on the technical stuff. And actually, the very best technical pre-sales people that I've ever met anywhere in the world are the ones who can go, look, it doesn't matter why it does this. The point is it's going to do this, right? This is what you want it to do. This is what we need it to do. Let's not worry about the technical stuff. They're going to take care of all that for us. You talk to me about this dream scenario. What would you like this to do for you and your customers? And the technical conversation is removed from it entirely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so, you know, it's so interesting. Um, <laughs> the species known as the, as the tech expert uh, is certainly a unique species, but I think, you know, it, they need to learn the lesson that we have all had to learn, which is every prospective client, every customer, every employee, every investor in your mm. business, you need to understand that their burning question is what is in it for me, right? Exactly, yeah. And, and, and until you get that, right, you are just a person with a lot of energy around an idea that feels good and feels right and makes sense to you. And until you can sell it, whether it's to a prospect, to an investor, to an employee, it, it's only ever going to be a concept that mm. will never actually get off the ground. This is the thing that actually you just touched on a really interesting point there. And, and, and I know you did a lot within the um, the world of talent within within HR. And, and as you know, I owned an executive search firm for many years and was, was head of internal talent and acquisition and, and kind of recruitment director for a number of years. And one of the things that always used to fascinate me is how few leaders understand that they really do need to sell the vision to their employees as well, because they're the people who essentially they're the face of your brand, right? They are the most customer facing people. They're all ambassadors and advocates of your brand. And if they're not, they certainly should be. Um, but that doesn't happen by accident. Like they're not just going to become as, you know, as, as passionate about what you do as you are, unless you communicate that, that with them. And, Often people will understand the importance of, you know, sales and marketing material. I'll give you, I'll give you a great example. Actually, um, I was working with this business. I won't name them because that's not fair. They were a, a prop tech business, and their sales team were having a conversation, and something had happened in like the the canteen, and they were doing some work or something. So they all had to go and eat their lunch in a different room, and they did it in like one of the um, like the meeting rooms, quite a large meeting room. And the meeting that had been in there previously was from the marketing team. And they'd left loads of their marketing material all over the desk and had stuff written all over the walls. And I walked into the room to go and kind of see how everybody was getting on. And the, the salespeople were all sat in there having a conversation going, did you know we did this? I didn't know we did this. And they were learning about their company 
from the marketing material. They were like, I didn't know this about our CEO. I didn't know we did this. I didn't know we used to do this and now we do this. And you could just, right then and there, you could see the divide, right? They were taking all this time to sell to the customer what you do, but hadn't communicated that effectively across your own business. So it's so it's so interesting, right? And it's the biggest opportunity I think that uh, organizations have missed as they've grown is that they have turned their attention and their focus so much on selling to a prospect or even to a, a prospective investor, and they have forgotten to bring along their employees. And to your point, they are the they're they're your brand ambassadors. If they don't get it if they don't believe in it, if they don't embrace it, and again, back to that question of what's in it for them, if they don't see a personal connection between what they care about and what you care about, then you are never going to achieve you know, the, the, the amazing heights you're setting out for. Your vision could be super ambitious, but if you don't bring your people along, along the way, you're, you're only ever going to be, at best, mediocre. And I think that's why a lot of companies have sort of embraced that and understood that and have put more attention, uh, you know, and focus on this notion of onboarding employees and really helping to acculturate them into what your business is all about. It's a, it's a huge opportunity that many, many leaders miss. Mm, it's very true. In fact, but it's the same could also be true and said of the process at the opposite end, right? Which is the exit interview. Oh, yeah. Um, exit interviews are traditionally done extremely badly um, because if you go into an exit interview from a self-defensive perspective, it becomes a completely pointless exercise, right? It's like, why are you leaving? Well, I didn't get on with my manager because of this and this. And it's like, well... If you are you raising a complaint because to record that I have to raise a complaint and that means you're going to have to come back in two weeks and we'll have a hearing about it and you know that could lead to this and you're going to have to talk to them and in the end they're just like no it's fine just I'm leaving because <laughs> everything's fine um, and all the opportunity to learn something is now just yeah. being completely passed and and actually you can learn so much from those people I mean people take it as a um, you know a personal insult and and I'm one of those people who who. I banged the drum for many years in my profession that counter offers don't work because by that point, you're just trying to bribe someone to stay. And in fact, I, again, won't say who, but a massive organization, one of the largest real estate organizations in the world, um, I know for a fact, because I was part of it, that they always will counter offer as a matter of principle. Absolutely always. But they know that you've all you've done is bought yourself an extra 60 to 90 days instead of losing this person in 30. That's right. right? That's exactly so what they, right. They accept it and they say, okay, you know, you're going really sorry to see you're going. However, you know, here's more money. Here's an opportunity. There's a promotion coming up in six to eight months. Let's have a conversation about it. Why don't you stay? Meanwhile, they're contacting the talent acquisition department to say this person's going to be gone soon. Please find their replacement. And and that's how these businesses become this image of the large barge ship, right? Because they can only ever make incremental changes versus huge leaps over and past their competition. Why is it so hard? You know, it, it becomes so difficult for these businesses to attract the right talent, let alone retain them. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure you have said many times, as I have, that we learn more from our failures than we do from our successes. 
so to your point, right, there's so much gold in understanding and talking to people on their way out so that you can shore up strategies for keeping, you know, it, it, enabling and motivating the right people to want to stay. And I'm with you that the, the counter offer at most buys you a little bit of time, um, but it's certainly not going to, uh, you know, to, to, to help you kind of move your, your business forward. I, I worked with a, with a uh, relatively large company um, years ago. And after every um, marketing effort, after every big proposal effort, whether they won or lost, they would do um, what we had affectionately called a post-mortem, right? So it was a lessons learned meeting and you sort of get the, the key players around the table and you say, okay, what went well, what didn't work? And after a while, the company stopped doing them. And I, you know, I went to the head of marketing and I said, we used to have these really rich, lively discussions around, you know, this sort of post-mortem. Why did we stop? And he said, well, honestly, we've gone on a streak here where we haven't won anything in a while. And those discussions got depressing. Well, here's the thing. You've given up a lot of that learning, a lot of that yeah. knowledge that could have helped you to grow because you decided that failures were nothing to learn from. And boy, yes. what, a, what a huge mistake. Well, I mean, it's at the time that you should be learning more information to try and fix this. You know, you could, you should, the attitude would almost make more sense if it was the opposite. Well, we're not really doing exit interviews at the moment in a post-mortem because we're winning everything. So there isn't really much need to do that at the moment. But, the, you know, we're not doing that well at the moment. So there's no reason to look into it. Just It just doesn't make any sense at all. Well, and, um, it, and it's dictated by the leadership, right? Because if, yeah, if the leaders themselves are the type that say, I, you know, we stopped asking people for input. We don't do employee surveys. We don't do exit interviews. We don't do 90 day check-ins because I don't want to hear it. Right. I don't want to hear the bad news. I don't want them to give us ideas that we can't implement. And the bigger the companies become, the more bureaucratic they become, um, you know, the harder it is to innovate because they necessarily overstructure things and they over bureaucratize decision-making and, and sort of evaluation of the next big idea. So it's, it's the rare large organization that can, you know, build in a structure that is proportional to their growth and their size while mm. remaining agile, humble, and open to doing things in a different way. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Okay, so I've got a couple of questions for you, but before we do, I want to just share with you a little little story because uh, I think you'll enjoy this. When I worked at agency side, and they're like the ones that nobody likes, right? So when I <laughs> when I when when I worked agency side, I had a hundred percent success record at getting people to turn down counter offers, and I actually got brought in by my head office to come and do training with the rest of the team because they were like how did you do that? Like people constantly turn up to us and be like, look, they've offered me this incredible counter offer. I'm going to stay. It's actually easier to stay than it is to leave. You know, I already know my way around here, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, everybody was saying the same stuff, right? Everyone was saying, you know, they're just trying to bribe you to stay. You know, most people will move again within six months. And everyone's always like, well, that's not me, right? Yeah. <laughs> everyone, yeah. everyone just kind of had that attitude towards it. No, no, they really do want to keep me. The way that I got around it, which is why I'm sharing it now, because it worked for many years and, and it, it, it worked almost, I say, I, I'd say a good sort of 98, 99% of the time, 
was whenever anybody came to me, and don't get me wrong, I'd get it too. I'd be like, listen, Phil, uh, yeah, thank you so much for all the effort you've put in with helping me get this opportunity. I'm going to be honest, mate. I'm going to I'm going to stay here. Um, they've given me a counter offer. And I'd say, oh, great. How far back are they backdating it? And they're like, oh, no, it's effective from next month. And I'd say, so you're, you're being sold a lemon then because in, in my opinion, <laughs> you've been worth that for the past 12 months, right? I mean, what's what's changed about your job in the last couple of days that hasn't been that way for the last 12 months? And they're like, uh, actually, nothing. Like it, it is the same. And it's like, right, okay. So, you know, if you're going to take that bribe, now bearing in mind, they're quite likely to overlook you for promotions and stuff now because you're the guy they had to bribe to stay. I mean, is was that the guy that you'd promote the person that you had to bribe to stay? You've at least got to make it worth your while. So if they're not backdating that that pay rise and paying you the difference for the, at least the last twelve months, I don't understand why you're looking at this. I really have to be honest. Um, and it just gets them all riled up and they'd go back going, hey, you paid me for the last 12 months and an HR would go, no chance. Like, yeah. we're giving you a yeah. pay rise. We're not going to backdate it. And then they call me and go, yeah, Phil, you're right. That They said no. And it's like, yeah, they don't value you as much as you think they do, dude. And then no, like, and, you know and honestly, even if they had fallen for that, right? Even if they had said, no, you're absolutely right. We're going to backdate it. Now they're going to be pissed off about it, right? Yeah, <laughs> because exactly. now, now they're going. Now they've just branded you. They're saying, "Okay, we'll we'll backdate it for twelve months if that's going to make you happy." But we're going to red circle you now. That's a big HR yeah. term, so note note that Absolutely. one. We're going to red circle you. You're not going to see another pay rise for you know at least another twelve to twenty four months. So oh, at least, right? At least, <laughs> yeah. Ever the whole co- oh. you're not even going to keep up with inflation. <laughs> you, know what, you know what I mean? <laughs> Thanks for. Um, st- you're now moving backwards. Congrats. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah we've we've moved your your personalized parking space to the other side of the car park. Exactly. <laughs> further to walk. Um, but you know, it, it's that's the thing, and that's that's why I think so many businesses really kind of miss that opportunity with their people. Is that you know, and and as you said, it's the feedback, not just from when people leave either. It's it's listening to the people who are doing the job on the ground, having the conversations with your customers day in day out. They have so many powerful insights. But I mean. I used to get so frustrated with this, and I imagine you've seen it time and again. You know, you've got a boardroom full of people sat scratching their heads going, how do we engage better with our customers? And it's like, well, there isn't anybody representing the customer in this room, point number one. (laughs) Point number two is, when was the last time any of you were on the phone with a customer? Why don't you go and talk to the people that do it all day, every day, and see what they tell you? Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the the, the higher up in in a hierarchy leaders get, the less inclined and honestly, the less incentivized they are to actually go out, speak to their customers and clients, talk to their employees. Um, And and again, it's because they start to get defensive, right? And they start to say, well, if I ask them for their input, they're going to tell me. And it's not all going to be that you're doing a great job, right? So it's, yeah, it's it's this paradox, right? Because the solutions are so uh, common sense, simple, but it doesn't mean they're easy to the average leader. Mm. I saw a, I saw a meeting once with a with a European sales director turned up, and uh, he was based out of the London office, and he went to the Frankfurt office, 
and he turns up and he's he's trying to do what you've just said, right? He's trying to engage better with his employees and everyone's off the phone and everyone's got their headsets down and they're all listening and the manager says, look, we're, we're joined by a, a special guest here today. You know, please, everyone put your phones on. Do not disturb. We're going to have a conversation for the next 15, 20 minutes. It's an open floor. Say whatever you want to say. Meanwhile, all their managers are glaring at them. So nobody <laughs> wants to say anything anyway, right? And the funniest question was the first one. Somebody put their hand up and the manager was just like, if, if looks could kill, right? <laughs> this manager is staring down this poor girl. And he says, uh, yeah, feel free to ask me anything you want. So she puts her hand up and she goes, who are you? <laughs> I love it. Uh, and I it was it. like, I love, like, oh, I'm the European sales director. I'm your boss's boss's boss. And she's like, oh, okay, we've, we've we we didn't know your name. We've never met you before. <laughs> well, wh- why is that show, Undercover Boss, so popular? I mean, it, you know, if if you couldn't recognize who the CEO of your company is, it's not that the employee is doing something wrong. The CEO is. Right. No, it's so true. I, you know, right, but to, you're right. So the ones where they get rumbled should be every episode. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and I'll do you one better. I've, I've had clients who come to me, um, you know, because their senior leadership team, their executive leadership or one layer down, um, you know, they'll say, Claire, um, we, we need you to come in and, and, and sort of evaluate what's going on here because we're not we're not ready to say that we're toxic just yet. But there's some there's some misalignment, there's some bad behavior, and so we want you to. And their solution, they think, and I love when they come to me with the with the solution, um, and they <laughs> say, you know, and they go, we want you to come in and do 360 degree feedback on the executive team. And 100 percent of the time, I say that's a great idea for some companies, but not yours. It's going to backfire. And they go, well, well what do you mean? We hear, you know, we hear that that's a great thing, and they're gonna, you know, hear from all all sides. And I say, if your leaders are not self-aware enough to, you know, kind of lean into that conversation, what will end up happening is they are going to be like heat-seeking missiles and go after the people because they get to pick who who gives them the feedback, right? They're going to go back and say, who said this about me? And I want to understand why that is. It has the absolute opposite effect in a company that is already going down the wrong road than you want it to. Um, and, and so I always, you know, I, I, when, when people work with me, you have to understand sometimes I'm going to laugh at you and your idea because when you come to me with, you know, our team is not behaving well, let's do a 360 degree feedback and we want you to do it because it will, you know, it will sound better from a third party. Um, no way, because it's just, it's going to, it will backfire. Um, and it is only going to amplify what is not working and what is dysfunctional in your leadership team. I actually had a great conversation with somebody about this, this exact thing the other day, right? They, they, and they, they always do it at the beginning of their work. They do a 12 month program and they always do this at the beginning of their work just so that they have some like a barometer. Right. And about three weeks after the results came back, the CEO rings the guy up and he says, I want you to do it again. And he says, well, we will in 12 months time. He says, no, no, I want you to do it again now. And he says, why? Right, and wait for this answer. He says, because I got them all together and told them how annoyed I was at the responses. So I think we're going to see different responses this time. <laughs> Thank you. You just proved my point. And it Thank was like, you. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> it's like, I think you've missed the point of honest feed, honest and anonymous feedback. And he said, yeah. I, I literally went into the room. I was like, I don't know who said this about me, but you better hope I don't find out. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, 
Of course they're now not going to be honest. Well done. You've just ruined any learning <laughs> that could be done from that whole process. That well, and, and you've permanently shut the door on anyone actually speaking up and, and, and telling you the truth about your business. And if you want to just surround yourself with yes men and women who just agree with you and tell you, you know, you look pretty and, you know, everything you're doing is brilliant, um, prepare not to grow and prepare to lose your best people and prepare for your competition to beat the snot out of you because that is not the way that you grow and you run a successful business. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Gordon Ramsay, um, mm. the chef. And I watch <laughs> a lot of his stuff on TV. I mean, maybe, maybe because I swear as much as he does, but um, <laughs> I, I am a big fan. And one of the things that I remember from even one of his very, very old seasons was somebody said, you know, don't you go around the dining room um, and listen to the compliments. And he says, no, I listen to the phone ringing on a Monday morning to hear how fully booked we are. But my, my staff don't ask what was good. They ask what we can improve and they ask for feedback. I want to hear criticism because that's how we improve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's, you know, so, so few, I can't say so few leaders, that's unfair. A lot of leaders are afraid to ask and they have stopped asking. Um, because, you know, it, it, and, and we all know that as leaders, you have to develop a thick skin, but that's easier said than done. Mm. I mean, but it's even the terminology of these, these uh, customer surveys and things, isn't it, from a customer experience perspective? I mean, if you ask an open-ended question, like, what could we do to improve our service? You're going to get some answers. But instead, people cop out with the, how much did you like our service? Grade it between one and five. It's already, you're, you're only looking at the positives, right? And it's like, oh, well, that person gave us a two, so they must have been really angry, or maybe they were having a bad day. And it's like, no, give them the opportunity to actually say to you, no, I like your service, but I'd like it even more if you did this, this, and this. That's um, right. And that's what gives your business longevity. Look, I'm, I'm curious, what what's the difference between a good leader and a good manager? Oh, it's a great question. You know, it, just about every company that I've ever worked with asks that question. Um, and, and I could give you a very long answer, but the simple answer is this. A manager will tell you what to do. A leader is going to tell you why it matters. And both of those things are absolutely necessary to your business, right? Back, back to your example of, um, you know, the, the leader of a growing company who wants to remain the visionary, but knows that he cannot be the, the day-to-day manager. So he brought in a managing director. Um, the, you know, the leader keeps his or her eye on that longer term horizon and says, this is what we are striving for. And this is why, and this is why you should care about that. And it's the manager who says, okay, that's the, you know, that's the plan, right? That's the roadmap. Now let's chart the, excuse me, that's the horizon. Now let's chart the roadmap to get there. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Now, I imagine I already know the answer to this before you you answer <laughs> it, but, uh, but I want to ask anyway, because I want to kind of fully understand this leadership. Can it be taught to anybody or do you have to have some sort of natural ability with this that you can then improve? So there is a percentage of the population that is not coachable. So I'm okay. going to put that out right up front, right? Love it. Um, but the overwhelming majority of, of people have it within them to be truly genuine, followable leaders. And I use that word deliberately because that's the whole definition of a leader, right? If, if you're wondering if you're a leader or not, the simple self-test is to turn around. And if there is nobody following you, 
you're not a leader, right? Yeah. Um, so when I formed Talent Boost, uh, and I and I officially kind of opened its doors, uh, virtually speaking, back in 2013, um, I built it on the mantra of talent isn't born, it's boosted. And I feel the same about leadership. And, you know, there are there are certain people that we come across that we've either worked with, worked for, or, you know, are out in the, the, the celebrity space that we look at and we say they are natural born leaders. Um, we all have natural talents. And I think the ones that make it look easy, the ones who look charismatic, the ones who are very inspirational, uh, in, inspirational, who are sort of naturally followable didn't walk out of the out of the womb with a following, right? They just sort yeah, of true. understood, I think, a little bit more freely and perhaps more quickly than some of the rest of us, um, what their natural skills were. So, you know, to me, anyone has it within them to lead others. Anyone does. And, you know, the way to do that, and, I, and I've used this, this sort of self-awareness concept a couple of times already during our conversation, but that's absolutely step one. You have to be deeply aware of what it is that you are naturally good at. And it doesn't mean that if you're an introvert, you can't lead. It doesn't mean that if you have a disc profile that says that you're not, you know, very decisive or very aggressive, that you can't lead. It's about understanding deeply what you can do, what comes naturally to you, and then being authentic to that. The best leaders are not snake oil salesmen. They're yeah. the ones who are truly genuine to their personality and their unique skill sets. So it's a mm. bit of a long-winded answer, but I, no, truly I, like that believe, I, mean, I truly believe anybody has it within them to, to lead. Um, you know, and it's, it, and like I said before, there's a, there is a small percentage of, of the population, um, that, that does lead, that is in a leadership position, but will not grow and will not improve because they are not coachable. Mm. And you know what? I think you have to be ready for it as well. I think you have to be ready to learn those skills and, and put the work in because, you know, how many times do we see in, in the corporate world, you know, using sales again as an analogy, but this really works in, in every line, right? You take the best sales performer and promote them to management and then you promote them to, to a, you know, a director's position and you've taken them away from the thing that they were best at. And how I've seen it time and again, right? Because what ends up happening there is you promote somebody into a position that wasn't right for them because they were the top performer. You've now lost your top performer, and you did so because you somehow magically hoped that without giving them the skills to do so, they were just going to know how to clone the rest of the team and turn them into mini versions of them, um, but didn't give the ability to do that. And now what you've done is you've put them in a position that they're not, they're not enjoying, they're not succeeding in, they're not thriving in, which is what they were, and they're going to leave because there's no way that they're going to want to stay in a position where they are, unless you use the F word, they're failing. <laughs> they don't, they don't want to stay in a position yeah. where they're failing. But at the same time, they can't then take a step back down because that looks like a demotion. Right. So yeah. they would rather take that step down in another organization than in the organization that they're currently in because you made a poor decision in putting somebody into a position without giving them the tools to do so. And, and that is probably happening a couple of hundred times a day, every single day across the corporate world globally. Oh, there, there's absolutely no doubt about that. I, you know, I have, um, I focus so much of my business around this very topic. 
So, you know, pick pick your pundit, but the statistics around um, leader uh, leadership success, especially at the higher, the executive level, the senior level, is is downright scary. It's it's well over 50% of all new leaders fail within 18 months, right? Um, and it doesn't mean it's their very first leadership assignment. It could be their fifth leadership assignment. And why is that? It's because exactly what you said. We we take somebody who is a, a rock star or at least a high performer in the role that they were in, especially if they were an individual contributor, so that salesperson that you spoke of, and we say, you are, you are who we want to model you know, this division or this business around. And so we're going to put you in a position to lead other people and, and build out your team. Yeah. And because of, well, and we hope for the best, right? And it's <laughs> and it's what I call it's it's called plug and pray, right? Yeah. So we we sort of just plug them in. Um and leaders like to think of this as plug and play. Well, we want leaders who, you know, based on their past performance, we know they're going to do well. We're going to put them into this bigger role and they're just going to be, you know, absolute champions. And the opposite is true. Because we plug them in and we just figure that, you know, they are really good performers. They're going to figure it out. But even if they've been leaders before, they've never been leaders in this role or perhaps at that depth. And there's this other statistic I saw the other day. It was, you know, when you talk to um, leaders at that level and you say, you know, what did you stumble over the most? 75% of them said they were unprepared. And it's not for lack of trying. Right. No. So you go back to this concept of of uh, employee onboarding. Leadership preparedness is something that most organizations flat out ignore. And you know what they do instead? <laughs> I've seen this in every company I, I've ever come across. They install a new leader, whether they you know they hired him from the outside or they promote them from within or what have you. And they financially plan for a six-month dip they in plan performance. For failure. Yeah, I've seen this before. Right? Yeah. They <laughs> go, it's a new leader, there's change, it's a big team, it's a difficult client, it's, you know, they're a little bit out of their depth. And so we're gonna we're gonna plan for, we're gonna forecast financially, <laughs> right? Because we've got comfort in process, we've got comfort in spreadsheets, and we're gonna plan for a six-month dip in performance. Phil, that makes absolutely no sense to me. Well, especially because you, what you're doing is acknowledging that they're not prepared for this right now. So you you forecast the dip, but then don't do anything to bridge the gap and help them to become prepared for it. So you recognize right. the problem and then ignore the solution. Because they find comfort in, well, numbers are black and white, right? And and so I can, I can uh, predict what that dip is going to look like. But to actually solve the problem is such a unique customized individual solution that I couldn't, you know, as a, as an organization begin to comprehend how to get out in front of. So I'm just going to stay with what works for me and what I find security in, which is to plan for the dip. You know what? We could go full Joe Rogan on this and maybe we should do it at some point. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, yeah, we should, we should definitely just, <laughs> we'll just go on a leadership rant at some point. In fact, <laughs> We should we should just do a special episode of Billionaires in Boxes called "Here's All the Things You're Screwing Up," uh, and we'll just do like a three hour list of stuff we've seen over and over again. Um, and let's call it "Why are, are You Leaders Such Idiots?" Let, let's yeah, just call exactly. It that. Why yeah. do you suck? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> Claire, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure and we'll have to do it again real soon. Right. I hope everybody has enjoyed the show, taken so much away from that. I know I certainly have. Um, definitely check out Claire's profile and website as well. There's some exciting things to come. And um, until next time, take care of yourselves. This is Billionaires in Boxes, empowering one billion entrepreneurs, one podcast at a time. <laughs>